Welcome to Free Thoughts. I'm Trevor Burrus. And I'm Aaron Powell. Joining us today is Alex Narasta, Senior Immigration Policy Analyst at the Cato Institute. So since Trump has taken office, uh, and of course he took office amidst discussing cracking down on immigration a bunch, what has he done? Is just an overview to, to crack down on immigration. Well, he's done quite a bit administratively. The president does have quite a lot of power to sort of reallocate federal law enforcement. And he's done that. He's um, ordered Immigration and Customs Enforcement, which is the agency in charge of interior immigration enforcement, to uh, cooperate as much as possible with local uh, police agencies to try to round up illegal immigrants who have been arrested. He has put um, basically changed a lot of the rules so that um, basically the uh, federal agencies don't have many restrictions and what they can do in terms of uh, trying to apprehend illegal immigrants. Many of the Obama era rules were taken away. And uh, recently we've seen on the border they put in place a no tolerance policy whereby anybody who illegally enters the United States will be automatically charged with that misdemeanor supposedly serve part of their sentences or just deported immediately, but then be labeled a convicted criminal, uh, deported from the United States, which means that if they enter again, it's a very serious offense. So as Trevor said, he came into office having made all sorts of promises about cracking down on immigration, usually phrasing it as illegal, but we all knew he meant to crack down on all of it. Since he got started on this, has he done about what you've expected? Has there been anything that he's done that was maybe more egregious, more hardline than you thought based on his campaign rhetoric? No, it actually took me a while for uh, for a lot of his promises to go into effect. I mean, it wasn't until late 2017 when he canceled the DACA program, which, uh, if you recall, was the program that President Obama put in place to temporarily legalize some illegal immigrants who were brought here as kids. So it took him a while to cancel that program. So I was actually pleasantly surprised by that one. Um, it also, he has been completely ineffective at pushing through any laws in Congress that would permanently restrict legal immigration. If you recall, his uh, campaign promises, when you add them all together, amounted to cutting legal immigration by about 60%. The bills that were introduced to sort of put this into effect usually would have cut it by 40 to 50 percent. There have been numerous efforts at that, but none of those have gone anywhere. None of the, uh, those have all failed. Administratively, the president has put in place a lot of restrictions on H-1B visas, which are sort of low-skilled temporary visas. Um, I'm sorry, high-skilled temporary visas for people coming abroad to work here. So the numbers applying for those limited slots has declined, but we still they're still hitting the cap every year. Student visas, the numbers are down about 20% year over year. So he's had an effect on foreigners entering the United States uh, that's negative. But in terms of any permanent damage, there hasn't been much yet. There hasn't been any yet because Congress hasn't passed any laws. You, I think you had written about or possibly uh, our colleague Dave Beer about the forms for just immigration forms, visa forms were just multiplied, but to double the amount of pages. Is that because they're running more background checks or or just out of spite? That, yeah, that's part of the part of this is oh, how, how much how much are they trying to just make it more difficult for the purposes that they don't really want even legal immigration? Sure. So for a lot of these cases, um, they, they did increase the f length of the forms for most visas. Uh, in some cases, increased them by a factor of nine in terms of the number of pages you have to fill out. But um, each page or additional page on there is sort of just a request for more evidence to support 
the uh, visa claims made by these people. So it's just like extra expenses, uh, usually cost more money. To, and the biggest cost is lawyer fees for a lot of these folks, uh, many of whom are not wealthy. Uh, but we haven't seen much of a decline in terms of the, uh, the numbers of people who want to come to this country. Um, it's very difficult to come here legally on a green card in most of these visas. People who get there, the sort of um, uh, inelastic demand. So once they get there, they really, really want to go all the way. So the main effect of a lot of these sort of rules, like you said, with the the paperwork is that uh, immigrants just end up paying more money to lawyers. So the big story in immigration recently was the child separation policy and the the horrific videos and audio that we got out of that. Um, that I mean, in, in an encouraging fashion, it showed Americans there, – there was a line um, where Americans seem to, to finally say this stuff you're doing to poor immigrants is not acceptable. Um, some Americans. Some Americans. Um, <clears throat> I think a majority. But can you walk us through like what was that policy? Where did it come from? Who was it affecting? And what role Trump played in it? So it's actually a number of different policies that intersected into this sort of uh, catastrophe. Um, I kind of have to go back, unfortunately, to 2014 to talk about this. But in 2014, there was another big surge of unaccompanied alien children at the border. They were mainly from Central America. Does this just mean kids coming across by themselves? Yes. Yeah. Kids coming across by themselves. Um, there are family units is sort of the other term, which is where you have uh, uh, parents and children coming together. So you have a lot of these UACs, as they're called, unaccompanied alien children coming across. And then they're apprehended by the Obama administration and put into detention facilities. And it caused a huge uproar. I was actually in Texas when this story broke. And it caused a huge uproar amongst uh, Texas Republicans, but Republicans all over the country saying – that they would think like this is a huge invasion. The President Obama's uh, policies have prompted this. He's not hard enough on immigration. And the Obama administration responded by putting these kids into detention facilities uh, by themselves or if they had other family who were illegal immigrants, putting them all together in family detention. Now, the government's limited in its power to do this for various legal reasons. It basically can't hold kids in detention for a very long period of time before either reuniting them with family outside of prison inside the United States or deporting them. Now, this sort of problem sputtered on a bit until 2017 and early 2018. The Trump administration uh, saw a surge of more Central Americans coming up to the border. Now, most of them, when they got to the border, were asking for asylum, which is under U.S. laws where you have a well-founded fear of persecution if you get sent back home. What the Trump administration was doing was saying you can't apply for asylum. We're not even going to allow you to apply for asylum, sort of breaking, um, arguably breaking American law, but definitely traditions of allowing these people to ask. So you had this large camp of people who are Central American in Mexico right by the border who weren't allowed to ask. And the government said, come back next week, come back next month, we'll process you then. At the same time, Pres um, Attorney General Jeff Sessions was issuing rules changing what was necessary to claim asylum, limiting the ability of these folks to claim asylum. At the same time this happened, of course, these folks know this, uh, the Trump administration put into effect a policy that said if you cross illegally, we will... Uh, prosecute you for illegal entry into the United States. However, the loophole is for the asylum seekers is if they make it inside of the United States and then ask for asylum, the way it used to be is that they would be able to stay and that their claims would be adjudicated. 
because they're Central American, you can't deport them to Mexico because they're not Mexican. So you got to send them all the way back to Central America. But since they made an asylum claim, you have to go through the court process to see if it's a legitimate claim. So what happened is these folks were being stopped at the border from asking. The rules were changing. They realized this was their last shot to really get into the U.S. because who knows what the rules are going to be tomorrow. They sneak in, surrender immediately. But by sneaking in, they broke American law. The government then prosecutes them for the crime of breaking American law, often ignoring their asylum status, sending them back. And because they broke this law and a lot of them had kids with them, uh, they would be sent to uh, federal prison and the kids cannot be sent with them to federal prison. So it's a long-winded story of how we got there, but it's really a large sort of a, a cascading failure of many policies. This increase in asylum seekers, um, how many of these people – I guess the question is how many of these people are like legitimately seeking asylum versus say they would have been illegal immigrants anyway, but this is a better way to try to get in? It's a great question. There's good research by Michael Clemens at the Center for Global Development that finds that from um, – I believe it's 2013 through 2017, the per capita murder rate in the countries where these folks come from is the number one best predictor of um, how many of them leave and when they leave to come to the United States. But there's two points here you need to recognize. One is there's the being pushed out of your home country because of violence, but then there's the where do you decide to go? So they could stop in Mexico or they could go to Panama, other peaceful you know, relatively peaceful countries in that part of the world. But a lot of them have family in the United States. Uh, some of them have been in the United States before. They know about the opportunities. So whether so, they're probably being pushed out due to the violence, but they're being attracted to the United States because of the opportunities here, because of their family here. So it's a bit of both. So all this seems like someone could say together with this difficulty we're having, this is why we need a wall, that if they're sneaking across, as you mentioned, and then coming back and presenting themselves for asylum, that that's the perfect example of why we need to be able to control the doors, so to speak, that they go into so we can process them accordingly. What would you respond to, th to that? Well, I think the easiest and cheapest thing in that situation is to allow these folks to come up to the port of entry and to say, I am claiming asylum. And you can adjudicate my claim in the normal process that we did prior to Jeff Sessions sort of clogging this up. Um, it's a lot easier and cheaper than building a wall um, is just to allow the normal asylum system to work. But but that was part of the problem, too, is that if, if you want people to be here, I mean, I guess it depends on which people you think should be here. And I'm not sure how many immigrants the Trump administration thinks should be here at all. But if bona fide asylum seekers should be here, but then 40 percent of them aren't showing up for their court dates, because that's what they were kind of doing before, correct? They would they would say, OK, you're in the asylum docket or, or adjudication procedure and we'll let you out of the United States until until you come back to your court date. But they just wouldn't come back to their court date, which I mean, look, if I made a BS claim of asylum, mm -hmm. as kind of Aaron pointed out, uh, and then just wanted to melt into American society. Plus, that, you're that, probably part of MS-13. Uh, <laughs> yeah. And it, that's, that seems like a good way of getting into the country. It's a decent way. Um, there have been lots of experiments over the years about what, what are called alternatives to detention programs, which is these folks come up, they ask for asylum, or there are Ill other illegal immigrants. They have a particular claim that they try to make in court. Uh, and what they do is they basically release them out of detention but give them an ankle bracelet and assign caseworkers to follow up with them. And there have been lots of experiments with this over the years, but they basically get about a 90 percent um, success rate, which meaning, meaning that not just that they show up, 
to court, but that whatever the court says goes actually goes into effect. So if it says you have to leave, 90% of them comply with that order. Um, and most of them, um, 99% show up for their court hearings. So it's a lot cheaper than uh, holding them in detention, which the new estimates are that um, a family being held in detention should cost about $775 a day to the government, while a detaining or uh, these alternatives to detention cost about $17 a day on average. So if I understand correctly, though, the reason that they were separating the kids from their parents is because the parents were being sent to federal prison and you can't have kids in federal prison. So what's so bad about that? I mean, it seems like yeah, federal prison is not a great place for a kid and so we need to put them somewhere. So what's the – why does everyone get so upset? So that's a great point. Um, the upsetting point, I think, is that one, these kids, that they have to be separated in the first place based on this no tolerance policy of charging everybody with this federal misdemeanor for crossing the border illegally. They used to not do that. I mean, it used to be sort of up to the discretion, like, do we charge this person with the, with the misdemeanor or not? And um, so doing that, like, necessitates the separation. And I think that's sort of the root of the problem is like, why do we need to do this in the first place? These people aren't like violent and property criminals. There's very little evidence that few, many of them are. And those who are, are separated. Nobody really complains about that. I've heard you say before, and I, I agree that the immigration policy of kind of Ellis Island in 1880 is a pretty good way of doing it. Uh, but if it was in Ellis Island in 1880 and some family presented themselves off of a boat and the dad had a bunch of prison tattoos or something, uh, what would they have done at Ellis Island? They would, was there a detention facility there they would have put them in and maybe separated the kids and then get them on a boat and, and take, to take them away from? Is that what they would have done at that time? So if somebody was inadmissible under the law in 1880 and under the law at that time, uh, you were inadmissible if you were uh, – they knew you were sort of a violent property offender or if you uh, were obviously insane based on their standards at the time or, or ill, like uh, ill. If you were ill, they put you in a um, sort of a temporary holding to see if you got better or not. If you didn't get better, then they'd send you back. And under the laws of the time, if the steamship company sent you over, they would be responsible for sending you back, which is sort of like a filter on the other end to try to incentivize that. But let's say uh, you're part of a family. You've got kids and a daughter. Uh, and, and a wife, but the father's a criminal. The father would be forced to go back. The kids, however, and mother had the chance to stay in the United States if they wanted to. Um, Ellis Island actually opened in uh, 1890, and the first person to go through it was an unaccompanied alien children, child um, who was coming here by herself. She was, I believe, 11 years old, coming to meet her family who had come prior to that to sort of get set up. Now, in terms of uh, so-called internal enforcement, uh, we hear a lot of stories about raids on businesses and crops going uh, bad in the fields and just a lot more crackdown internally. Uh, is that worse? I mean, because I think that they've always had some amount of immigration crackdown internally. You, you, you could have been raided by ICE at different times if you ran businesses that are suspect. I know it happened uh, one time in, in uh, Colorado uh, to a business that my friend worked at. Uh, or So is it worse now or are we just seeing it more because everyone's talking about immigration and people weren't filming and writing about it so much during the Obama administration? We are seeing it more because of what you said. So, and 
Obama did a lot of interior enforcement in the United States. People don't recognize this. He basically broke the deportation records uh, for any president, um, especially during his first term. Uh, but he wasn't really proud of it, and he didn't talk about it a whole lot. This president, however, is very proud of interior enforcement, talks about it all the time. And part of the strategy now is to scare unauthorized immigrants, to scare illegal immigrants, to scare businesses as uh, a deterrent. So we do see an increase in interior enforcement over the last years of the Obama administration. And we see more um, uh, raids by Immigration and Customs Enforcement, more I-9 audits, more E-verified checks. But it's not too different from the first term of the Obama administration, frankly. It takes a long time to build these things up. Um, And Trump doesn't have one of the big benefits that Obama had, which was that every state in the United States cooperated with Obama and his interior immigration enforcement policy for the first three or four years. While now, a bunch of states, a bunch of state law enforcement agencies, state uh, governments have uh, passed laws limiting their cooperation with the federal government under Trump's era. So I think it's likely that Trump will never get up to the levels of deportation that occurred under President Obama just because so much of the country is not cooperating with him. What's Jeff Sessions' motivation in all of this? I mean, so when, whenever Trump does anything, uh, the, the, the left or um, even the center left, they, they seem to say, well, this is, this is motivated by racism. Um, or it's motivated by at the, you know, on the softest side, something like a semi-racist nationalism, right? Uh, do you think that's what's going on here? There's, it, it's hard to read. Of course, I can't read the minds of these folks. I can only go off of what they say. Their justification is um, the main person is definitely Jeff Sessions, and he's written and spoken for decades about the need to cut all immigration, legal and otherwise, into the United States. And he usually uses the economic argument. He says there's low-skilled Americans. They aren't doing very well here. We need to cut low-skilled immigration to help them out. And then he sort of veers into they're all terrorists and they're going to kill us. And then he goes to they're all criminals. Look at me. I'm a law enforcement agent or I have a background in this. I want to enforce the law um, and I want to stop that. Other folks, though, but that's like more of an old-school argument. Um, the newer folks in there, like uh, Stephen Miller, who's an advisor and speechwriter to the president, he is animated by nationalism. He says this frequently. He says, um, uh, the United States, we need to build a national homogeneous population by limiting immigration, by tinkering and central planning the population so that we're all basically uh, look the same, sound the same, are the same. This will increase solidarity and then magical things are supposed to happen. Uh, in terms of nationalism, magical, awesome, beautiful things are supposed to happen. Um, And that's his major motivation for cutting down or or arguing for cutting down on immigration. That argument always struck me as weird. I mean, in a lot of ways, (laughs) partly because I'm a nationalist. But but that idea that we should – that the people who are making that argument, so Stephen Miller and then the really virulently anti-immigration people in Trump's base, um, the ones who want to stop all non-Americans from coming in – the if America had a homogenized culture, if it had, you know, we we were to say like, what is America, and that's the culture we're going to have, and we're kick out everyone who doesn't agree with it, we'd be kicking those people out, you know, like they don't, they're not even remotely representative of America or American values. On you know, you can get polling data on that, you can look at sheer population numbers, and so do they. I guess do they understand that 
if if that was what we were going to go for, it's not like America would end up looking like their little towns. So this gets into I mean, there is the phrase nation building comes from early 20th and late 19th century nationalists. Um, they realize that their ideal of this population does not exist. They realize this in every country in Europe and in the United States. So they needed to construct it. They needed to centrally plan this. So this is an aspirational um, argument on their part rather than a uh, return to what was in the past. I mean, they, all, of course, all make up a mythology or myths of the past to try to justify this sort of um, uh, silly arguments that they wa- justify this silly goal of theirs. But it's always aspirational. They're moving forward. They're trying to create this thing that does not exist and they want to make it powerful. I also think it's quite odd in their mind. I've asked some people who support this, who write at National Review and other places, like, how does splitting apart American families, because a lot of these illegal immigrants or other immigrants are married or related to Americans, how does splitting them apart with the police, forcibly removing them, Saying you're doing it for nationalism increased national solidarity. I think it does the exact opposite, actually. And and sorry, just one more thing. Um, um, uh, Aristide Zolberg, who is a historian, a late historian who wrote about nationalism but also refugees and immigration, uh, described nationalism as a refugee-creating process. And what he meant by that was that countries in an attempt to become homogeneous, there are a couple options open to them. One is sort of education and assimilation in that way. The other way is to kick people out um, and achieve homogeneity by kicking out everybody who doesn't fit into this uh, specific definition of groups. The third one, of course, is genocide. So um, the first two, sort of uh, this forced assimilation uh, and the refugee creation process was very, very popular up until about the 1920s when every country in the world closed its borders. And then I think it's no coincidence that after then, uh, many engaged in uh, uh, genocide and the other more brutal methods to try to create this nationalist utopia. Not all nationalists are like that, of course, uh, but those are sort of the methods that are available to them. Yeah, discussing the breaking up of families, um, the You've heard these stories, too, about specific, often specific stories, like some dad for 40 years who uh, was illegal and has three kids and a dentist or something like that who's getting kicked out. Uh, We probably don't have good enough numbers on it, but but did that kind of stuff happen before Trump? I mean, with just sort of the zero tolerance of of just giving someone a break for being 40 years a good citizen, or, or are we just, again, hearing about those more and more? So it's more if you fall into the hands of the government now, it's much more likely that you will be deported. Um, in the past, though, they cast a much wider net, captured many more people. So you heard more stories of instances like that just because they catched they caught many more people. So they deported a lot more. So a lot of people caught up in that. Now, however, you have fewer of those individual tales, fewer people getting arrested on like, you know, a traffic violation, something not even drunk driving, but like turning without a signal. Um, Many fewer of these people who are being deported. But when they happen, we're paying more attention to them because there's zero leeway. Uh, It was for a time that if you were apprehended by ICE during the Obama and Bush years and you were like this type of person, you've been here for a long time, you're not a criminal then what you had to do was basically check in with ICE every six months, uh, go to these appointments, make sure that you weren't being a criminal. And as long as you did that, they wouldn't deport you. You'd be sort of way low on the list of priorities. Uh, now the government is apprehending those people when they show up to their check-ins uh, and deporting them, even if they haven't done anything additional to earn that deportation. I'd like to ask about rhetoric. Um, 
the, the especially the words open borders and amnesty. Uh, when I watch Fox News occasionally, sometimes when I'm home with my parents or something, I am astounded by how everyone on Fox and then increasingly just on the right uses the term open borders to describe A, our current immigration system or B, the beliefs of the people who are not for Trump's system. They just said with well, these open border Democrats, these are all for open border people and amnesty functions in a similar type of fashion that, that there are two types of people out there, people who want to control the border and people who don't give a crap essentially. Um, how how bad is that kind of rhetoric and mistaken is it, do you think, in terms of where the immigration debate actually is? Because if I remember correctly, I can pull up clips of Chuck Schumer and Nancy Pelosi and Hillary Clinton talking about the need to crack down on illegal immigration just seven years ago. But now apparently they don't believe in borders. It, it, just the nature of political discussion, I guess. Only they didn't believe in borders. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, then, uh, then you guys have to get rid of me. Uh, <laughs> there is probably not a single person in Capitol Hill – who would uh, whose immigration position could be fairly described as open borders. Um, even the latest sort of uh, iteration of this is the abolish ICE movement. We have a lot of protests about this. The people who are talking about abolish ICE who are on Capitol Hill, like Senator Warren and others, I mean, their proposals would not even abolish ICE. The proposals are basically to reform it a little bit or make it more humane or to create a commission to investigate how to make it more humane. I mean, these are not the actions of people who are uh, supporters of open borders. These are not the Brian Kaplans of the world who are writing or, or pushing for this kind of policy. So it's just mindless rhetoric on their part. Um, uh, the, the people who say uh, the Democrats are some open borders party. I mean, Bernie Sanders said famously that open borders was a, quote, like Koch brothers conspiracy, unquote, to try to, try to overwhelm the United States. Now, I do think, though, like intellectually – there is a growing number of left-wing intellectuals, uh, people like Matt Iglesias, uh, Ezra Klein, um, lots of others who are in favor of open borders, have said so explicitly. Libertarians have been there for a little while. Um, uh, Most, many, many libertarians. Many, many Not libertarians. All. No, I mean, but I think um, it's been a much more accepted part of the debate amongst libertarians about uh, open borders or immigration. What it's, specifically do we mean by open borders? So I think they mean um, – it depends on the person to talk to, but in terms of like Matt Iglesias and Ezra Klein, uh, what they'll basically talk about is people who are not criminals, who are not national security threats, and who are reasonably healthy should be able to come here, live, work, uh, and eventually become citizens. So Ellis Island is kind of what we said. Pretty much to like an Ellis Island between 1875 and 1882, sort of um, before the Chinese Exclusion Act, but after criminals were barred, uh, sort of type of policy, going back to that sort of very lightly regulated, relatively open system. And that's what I think most um, libertarians who support this support that kind of move toward that. And most of the uh, left wingers who support this uh, support that kind of move. But we're talking about a fraction of a percent here of people who probably profess to believe in this type of thing. And I will bet um, there's probably a much – there's probably 10 to 20 times as many people who believe that's the policy we have right now than actually want that policy to be in effect. Um, I spend a lot of time speaking in places like Arizona, get invited to speak to mostly hostile audiences about the topic of immigration. And one time I sort of explained how complicated – how we should legalize current illegal immigrants. And this very nice old woman came up to me afterwards and said, you know, I understand your arguments, but why don't they just go down to the post office and register and become legal? And I could imagine that if that's how you thought the system worked, you would say, what do these people have to hide? Why should we legalize them? 
They're all a bunch of criminals. So I think the number one thing that uh, you know people like myself and others can do to try to convince the population to be more in favor of immigration is just to explain how darn hard it is to come here in the first place. But how much of that that ignorance or that claim that just go down to the post office is pretextual? So you said Jeff Sessions, when he's saying we need to clap down on immigration, keeps changing his story, right? So it's the it's the economic argument, but the economic argument has been utterly discredited. And so then it's a law and order, and then it's a terrorism. Um, and so how much of the anti the the I guess opposition to liberalized immigration is because people don't understand how the current system works or buy into the economic, and how much of it is them just these are answers that they're fishing for or, or arguments that they're fishing for that they're advancing because, but they're going to accept any argument because underlying they simply don't want immigrants either for nationalism reasons or because they talk funny. Or something like that. So you could you could say, no, look, here's it takes years and years, and here's all the forms you have to fill out, and they'll be like, well, in that case, I think maybe they're all terrorists. So that's a that's a great question. Uh, there are no doubt a lot of people, no matter what the evidence was, they'd always be in favor of having closed borders, no matter what. Uh, but in terms of sort of most people, I think who identify with the Donald Trump or um, Jeff Sessions sort of closed border. Uh, position, I think it's a combination of ignorance about how the current laws work and the perception that immigration is chaotic, that there's absolute madness and chaos on the border. And when people see chaos in a particular area of life, almost none of them, with the exception of libertarians, want fewer restrictions, want to deregulate, want to pull back the hand of the state. The reaction is almost always clamp down more more law enforcement, more control, more fa- uh, more of this. There's a wonderful recent paper of this called The Locus of Control. It's a part of a political psychology literature where he takes a look, the, the authors take a look at the opinions in the U.S., Canada, and the United Kingdom about immigration and then links it with perceptions of chaos on the border, societal chaos related to immigration, how much control you think your government and you have over this system. And it turns out that the perception that the government has this under control, that it's A-OK, is very highly linked with uh, support for liberalizing the system. But people who think it's chaotic, that it's madness, it's a wild west, it's it's whatever, just um, uh, cats and dogs mating, raining nonsense. (laughs) Living living together. Living together. (laughs) Dogs and cats raining. I don't know what I was going with that. It was the Ghostbusters Um, line. Cats Uh, and dogs living together. It'll be anarchy. So the, the perception that it's like anarchy makes people really, really want more state control and more restriction. But uh, I mean, that's just not what's going on on the ground. Well, that's, that was going to be my follow-up question is how much chaos is there on the border? Very little. I mean, in 2000, there were about one – in the year 2000, there were about 1.65 million arrests of illegal immigrants coming into the United States. Uh, last year, there were about 303,000 along the U.S. border. So you're talking about a massive decline, an over 80 percent, uh, about an 80 percent decline in terms of the number of people coming across uh, who are being apprehended. And the Border Patrol is multiple times multiples higher and larger than it used to be. So the the chaos is down. The crime rates in all the border cities are way down from what they were, you know, 18 years ago and continue to go down. Um, It's just that part of the problem is having more enforcement, having more government agents there on the border and in some places having a wall means that every little thing somebody does that's illegal gets recorded. Every little thing that happens is seen as sake, see, told you chaos. Whereas if there were half as many Border Patrol agents down there and the it was a lot easier to come into the United States legally, it would seem a lot more controlled. Wouldn't it be 
would it be desirable to pr build a wall to, for two reasons? One, it seems that if we legalize our liberal immigration system to the point that we would want it to, but it would still under any immigration system, it would be desirable to cut down on, on illegal immigration and have it be zero, and a wall could help that. Uh, and also, maybe it's desirable to build a wall as a concession if people make if it makes people feel like it's control because the wall is a big symbol. I mean, just Game of Thrones, uh, you know, the, the, just the the wall is a symbol of control and force. Uh, even if they're wrong about that, uh, that maybe we say, okay, let's build the wall as long as we actually liberalize the immigration system and make it make it the way you already think it is. So I used to think that. I used to think that building a wall would make people feel more secure. I don't think that anymore because um, every wall would have cameras mounted on top. Anybody trying to scale that wall would be recorded. Pictures would be taken. Border Patrol would run up there. And I think it could actually increase the perception of chaos. Because you would know, like, there'd be a sensor tripping every time people tried to do that. And people would dig tunnels, more tunnels to get into the U.S. Tunnels are scary. Uh, you see these, like, pictures people taking. It's, like, dark and gloomy and there's, like, railroad tracks and it's, like, dun-dun-dun-dun, like, scary music going through. I mean, that does look kind of scary. So you'd have more of that to get around it. And I think that that would have the opposite result. People would say... We're recording every bad thing that happens now, and it is so bad. It is so chaotic, even though the numbers are down by like 90 percent. Well, but now what about MS-13? Aaron mentioned them previously, and, and we have heard stories that I think are correct of some high schools. And There's one in Virginia, I believe, that is having a huge problem with MS-13, uh, that they're not a non-concern, and many of them are El Salvadorian illegal immigrants. From uh, So is this something that we should be focusing on to some degree? So, um, yeah, I mean, I live in Fairfax County where it's like the MS-13 capital uh, of the United States, supposedly, or one of them. Um, the percentage of people coming across who are identified as MS-13 members uh, is about is less than one-tenth of one percent of those people who have been apprehended or gone through any of this child migration system. So it's a very, very small issue. Um, government counting of gangs and gang membership in the U.S. is just – very poor, very fraught with a lot of problems. Once you basically get on one of these gang lists, you can never get off, and there's no like due process for getting on it. So the numbers there are really bad, but they estimate that there's about 10,000 MS-13 members. It's been stable for many years on this. Um, and some of them do commit very brutal crimes. Now, we don't have good evidence of this, but um, according to the FBI, about 85% of murder victims are murdered by people who know them very well. And a lot of these people who are being murdered by MS-13 are either, unfortunately, other uh, illegal immigrants who are being abused and exploited by them or other gang members and a lot of this gang turf. So that's one thing to, to realize. I have an um, acquaintance who is a prosecutor in Fairfax County, and he was telling me once over a couple beers, um, listen, we're having a real hard time prosecuting and getting juries to convict these MS-13 guys, and I'm sort of – thinking conspiratorially, right? Sort of like law and order. I'm like, oh, is it because they're threatening the juries? And he goes, he goes, no. Well, like, let me give you an example. He goes, um, if we have an MS-13 member who's killed three people, the jury's like, oh, man, that's terrible. Three murders. But then the three people murdered are also MS-13 members. So the, the juries are like, eh, you know, uh, we're just going to, you know, it's all even. Let them kill each other. Who cares? And that's actually one of the more interesting. And that's something that if you dig back, into the problems with the Italian mafia was also the problem with um, uh, pro uh, convicting a lot of them. It's like 
we care if they kill somebody like Kate Steinle, who was killed in San Francisco, right, uh, by an illegal immigrant. Um, we care about that a lot. But we don't necessarily care if uh, another illegal immigrant or a gang member are the victims. And that's what it was like in the early 20th century. That seems to be what it is today. Americans are like, eh, it takes care of itself. There have been violent street gangs in America for quite a long time. Um, there have been violent street gangs in America with ties to or originating from Central and South America for a long time. <clears throat> so why is MS-13 the the scary thing? Like, are, is there something different about them? Or is there reason to be more scared of them? Um, or is it just a convenient name that we can use to, you know, encapsulate all the fears that people have? Or is it just their tattoos? <laughs> uh, so interesting about MS-13, it started in Los Angeles. Um, uh, and then they were uh, they were arrested, put in the prison system. Many of them, um, some of them uh, were illegal immigrants, and then they got deported to El Salvador where they sort of started this uh, gang down there. I think part of the fear is they've had a lot of success in uh, especially El Salvador, but also Honduras, Guatemala, uh, and other countries in setting up operations that have uh, destabilized a lot of the local security situation, that have outcompeted the government in uh, supplying uh, protection, but also uh, just being a terrorizing force that the government cannot control down there, cannot eradicate. So they're, you know, this scary transnational criminal organization. Um, they're involved in some drug trafficking, but it's mainly like other crimes. Um, a lot of like racketeering, um, a lot of like theft, a lot of uh, sort of normal criminal enterprise stuff, like uh, not that interesting. They're involved in drugs, of course, but it's not what they sort of do the best uh, out of these other groups. They're also super brutal. Um, a lot of these gangs are, uh, like, especially when they're getting started and they're up against much larger gangs, they compensate by using more vicious force. So they're known for using machetes to hack people to death, uh, to stab people to death like that. And um, they do do a lot of face tattoos, uh, partly to make people who are members of the gang make it so that they can't ever leave. They have no other options. So there's like a total commitment to the enterprise. Uh, so all of this combined, you know, failing societies where they're mainly based, a lot of criminal opportunities in the U.S. and elsewhere, transnational criminals sounds super scary, as well as the brutality and commitment of its members to the organization, I think, makes them more scary. But there really aren't that many murders committed by them in the United States. It's a very small threat compared to sort of the general number or percentage of people who get murdered. Over the course of, of the Trump administration and, and people's fears about anti-immigrant fervor and whether it's the video of the guy in the New York deli and all these you know people being mean to immigrants, the guy who was t talking about speak speak English, and um, it, it, it seems to a lot of people that there's this just beating drum of anti-immigrant fervor, which may or may not be true, but but if that's true, now how does it fit into American history? Like how does this era? of immigration enforcement. We discussed how Obama it, deported an unbelievable amount of people and and maybe Trump won't even be able to deport. So so sometimes it you just you have a story that no one's talking about, but now you have the story everyone's talking about. But in general, historically how is how have Americans treated immigrants? So in terms of like the social, sort of the private uh, social interactions, uh, we're doing pretty well historic but compared to historically. Uh, there were Numerous riots in the 1830s, 40s, 50s, up through the 1890s that were anti-immigrant, where there were lynchings of immigrants, uh, largest mass lynching in American history. 
uh, was in, uh, I believe it was 1890 in New Orleans, um, uh, when a large number of Italian immigrants were lynched. Um, there were massacres of Chinese immigrants in Wyoming and out west during the uh, 1880s and 1890s. Uh, it was really brutal stuff. Um, uh, I mean, uh, John Hughes, who was the Catholic Archbishop of New York from, I believe it was 1838, to 1864, uh, it got so bad that he threatened that if a single Catholic church was burned in New York, the city would be turned into a second Moscow, sort of a reference to um, uh, Napoleon or uh, Moscow being burned to the ground during the Napoleonic Wars. Um, so in terms of the private – and there's nothing like that going on today. I mean there might be the occasional uh, you know, uh, hate crime against somebody because they're an immigrant or because they're foreign-born or because they have an accent. But it's very rare, few and far between. Basically the worst we get is a lot of people being mean to immigrants like in these videos. Uh, now almost all the violence done is done by the federal government. Uh, and some state governments in cooperation with the federal government against these folks. Um, but I think that the peak in terms of immigration enforcement done by the government was during the Obama years, both in terms of the numbers deported, in terms of the percentage of the illegal immigration, immigrant population deported annually, in terms of the brutality, in terms of the percentage of the governments in the U.S., sort of the local and state governments getting involved. I, I do not see us ever going back to anything remotely uh, resembling what ruled in this country from 2009 to 2012. And that was under Democrats. So do you think right now there's a lot of rhetoric in this country, not just horror at what happened with the children separated from their parents, but but there's a lot of rhetoric, especially among the left of like, this is this runs counter to our values. We are a country that is accepting of immigrants. Uh, the abolish ICE. I mean, maybe when it's said by Elizabeth Warren doesn't really mean much, but when it's said by lots of people who aren't Elizabeth Warren, they mean abolish ICE. Do you think then that when the Democrats win back Congress or eventually the presidency, that we will see that I guess this attitude will continue and that we will see the Democrats embrace? a liberalized, more humane immigration system? Or do you think that when they're back in control, they'll fall back on the Obama years style? So I think it's a permanent or at least a long run change in the Democratic Party and how liberals uh, view the issue of immigration. You saw it transforming during Obama's administration, actually. So by 2012, Democrats, you know, if you go back to 2006 and on, uh, Democrats and Republicans had about the same opinion of uh, <clears throat> what should be done about immigration. Uh, both were pretty negative. About 35 percent, 30 to 40 percent uh, of them said that immigration was good for the country. Fast forward 2016, 80 percent of Democrats say immigration is good. Republicans haven't gotten worse. They're still 35 to 40 percent say it's good. So you saw a transformation during the Obama years and you saw it with him sort of lax, you know, relaxing enforcement beginning around 2011, 2012 doing the DACA program, trying to do the DAPA program, which was a more expansive legalization, and supporting the immigration reform effort in 2013, which would have been a, quite a liberalizing law. So you saw him transform during his administration. I think his transformation mirrors a lot of what was going on in wider Democrats. So now that you have Democrats sort of so – and now you have the Republicans in power – taking the exact opposite hardline approach. You have, I think, what the, was the natural push amongst liberals was to be more pro-immigration, get accelerated due to partisanship. So I don't think the uh, Democrats come back from this. I think that they view this as an issue that, that they are going to be uh, sort of at the core of their beliefs going forward. The old sort of Democratic consensus involved, uh, involved a lot of labor unions. 
and labor unions are dying in this country, I think they're replacing it with sort of uh, immigrant rights, immigrant justice, and viewing this as a large population that is legitimately victimized by the federal government and that this has the potential to be another sort of uh, human rights campaign or civil rights movement on on, on the uh, lines that of a least gay marriage issue, but probably something more like uh, what happened with the ending of segregation. And that might sound hyperbolic to people, but the laws that are in place right now say that it is illegal for you to hire an illegal immigrant. It is illegal for you to deal with them. It is illegal for you to interact with them in a whole host of different ways. Um, So the laws are are bad um, in terms of this. They are comparable to many of the laws that exist in this country under segregation that were targeting blacks. Um, And this is a population where you have dreamers, you have people who speak English, who have been raised here, who are very sympathetic. And I don't think that's going to go away. I think that's going to build and build and it's going to be part of the Democratic Party for a while. Free Thoughts is produced by Tess Terrible. If you enjoyed today's show, please rate and review us on iTunes. And if you'd like to learn more about libertarianism, find us on the web at www.libertarianism.org.